We are going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. I've heard others say, and I've said myself about the COVID-19 virus, I've never seen anything like this in my life. That's only because my lifetime has been relatively short. What we're going through now is not altogether unlike what people experienced in World War II, when the country endured fear and food shortages and rationing and blackouts, and they went through it together. You can go back further, 1918, after four horrible years of world war, a new war started with the H1N1 virus. It was then known as the Spanish flu. The flu won that war. Nearly a half a billion people worldwide contracted the virus. And more than 50 million died, including somewhere between 675,000 people and a million people in the US. In the city of Philadelphia, one out of three people died. The history of the world is filled with crises like the one we're enduring now, and some much worse. In the 14th century, Europe fell before the advance of the Black Death the bubonic plague. Approximately one out of every two people in places like the south of France, in parts of Italy, Spain, died. In some locations over a four-year period, 80% of the population died. In the city of Florence, in just one year, half the population died. In 1527, the bubonic plague reappeared in Europe. Courageous Martin Luther issued guidance for the people of Jesus. This is what he told them. We die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot leave their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. In earlier days, the church faced a terrible test. It was the third century and a disease like Ebola was spreading across the Roman Empire. Carthage was filled with unburied bodies that lay where they had fallen. No one dared to bury them. People were terrified. Into that crisis, the bishop Cyprian spoke. He told the church not to flee, but instead to go and live among the sick and the dying. He challenged them to give up comfort, security, and join the rejected and the forgotten. It's believed that his call fostered a, a movement in the church that lasted for three or four hundred years called the parabolani, taken from the Greek word meaning to risk one's life. They arose to serve the broken and the forgotten and the vulnerable. They went wherever the risk was greatest and the stakes were highest to bring the love of God to people in need. This is the heritage of the people of Jesus. How is it that the Parabolani rushed to danger when everyone else was fleeing it? They behaved differently because they believed differently. They knew something other people didn't know. They had news of which others remained ignorant. 
It was the same news that can make us courageous and loving in the face of COVID-19, that can help us care for the marginalized, the elderly, the hurting. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear that, you may think, oh, here's where he gets religious. It may surprise you to learn that the word gospel did not have religious overtones when it was used by Jesus and his followers. For us, the word's purely religious. For them, it was not. For years, I thought the word gospel meant something like this. Because Jesus died for us, if we receive him, our sins can be forgiven and we can go to heaven. That's not what Jesus or his apostles meant by the word. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that's true, and it's relevant, and it's enormously important. It's just not what the people who spoke the word when St. Paul was writing, for example, meant by it. When we use the word gospel in the way that I described, we turn it into advice or even a proposition, a deal. Uh, Accept Jesus and go to heaven. You're not going to find a better deal than that. But the gospel is not a deal. It's news. News about something that's happened. It's the announcement of something that has taken place, something that's changed everything. The word gospel just means good news or the announcement that something good has happened. So let's look at how it was used historically. I think that will help us get a handle on it. Following the death of Julius Caesar by the hands of the conspirators, Brutus, Cassius, Mark Antony, and others, the conspirators turned on each other and sent Rome into years of bloody civil war. Julius Caesar's heir, Octavian, returned to Rome and entered into a violent power struggle with Antony. If you were living in Rome and supporting Octavian, you were hoping his armies would win. If you were supporting Antony, you were hoping his armies would win. 30 BC was a year of ferocious battles all across the Mediterranean. Octavian, who eventually took the name Caesar Augustus, a name we know from our Bibles and from history, defeated Antony at sea, and Antony retreated to Egypt and to Cleopatra, where both he and she died. Octavian then sent heralds back to Rome with the good news, the gospel, that Octavian had won the war and would be returning to Rome to take up his rule. For some people, the herald's announcement was very good news. For others, not so much. But whatever it was, it wasn't advice. It wasn't a proposition. It wasn't a deal. It was news. So what is the good news the biblical writers delivered? The good news the Parabolani knew that made them willing to risk their lives in service to their king. It was the good news that God himself entered our troubled world through Jesus Christ. In the long war with evil, the climactic battle was joined on the Friday of Passover week when Christ was killed. The turning point came three days later when God raised him from the dead. It's the good news that Things have changed, and everything will change. 
because of what God has done by coming to us in Christ, we no longer need fear death from bubonic plague or Ebola or COVID-19 or cancer or old age. Death has been defeated. God's resurrection plan is in place. The victorious one will return to take up his rule. And in the meantime, we can join the kingdom preparations now taking place. That was the news the Parabolani heard and believed, the news that steeled them against fear and made them courageous in the face of death. But that good news announcement has been warped into something like this. You can go to heaven when you die. Now that was Plato's good news. It wasn't Jesus's. His good news was not that we could go to heaven when we die, but that heaven had come to us through him. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God had come among us in Christ and is making things right. Heaven, absolutely. And so much more. Our role as the church of Jesus is to be people of the good news. People who tell the good news, and more importantly, people who live the good news. See, our society has other gospels, a very different news that people are eager to announce. Your financial advisor can make your retirement income secure. Well, that's good news. This diet will make you healthy. This politician will solve our problems. <clears throat> But our good news is that God is here. He's come to us in Jesus Christ, and by his death and resurrection, he is making things right. Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians during a trying time. Many people were struggling. Some were suffering. This is Philippians chapter 1, the, first, the uh, last couple of verses. It was into that situation that he sent this letter filled with good news or gospel. He uses the word nine times in the letter, five times on the opening page. He kept this good news before his friend's eyes, even though, or especially because, they were in a tough time and it was a struggle. His, he first reminds his friends that they have been his partners, this is verse five, in the gospel, in the announcement that God is here, that he's Come to us in Jesus, and by his death and resurrection is making things right. Paul carried that message all around the eastern end of the Mediterranean, announcing to anyone and everyone that Jesus had won, that he, not Caesar, was Lord of all the earth. That announcement called for faith because it sure looked like Caesar was Lord. Nevertheless, wherever Paul heralded that news, people believed. And when they believed, they began to hope. Caesar hadn't brought peace, instituted justice, or made right what was wrong. But this other king, Jesus, had done what Caesar could never do. He'd conquered death. Of course, not everyone believed the good news. And some people actively fought against it, forcing Paul, this is verse 7 now, to confirm and defend the gospel the, the announcement of what had happened. 
Announcing that there was another king besides Caesar was a risky thing to do, and Paul found himself thrown into various prisons all around the Mediterranean. He writes, including one in Philippi, to whom he's now writing this letter. He writes that the Philippian church had shared with him in the confirmation and defense of the gospel. How did they do that? Well, certainly by their financial support. Paul will talk about that later in the letter. But more importantly, they confirmed the validity of Jesus' rule by living together in a community marked, this is the beginning of chapter 2, by love and cooperation, by respect and care, by sacrifice, courage, and joy. A community known for its confidence in God. How does one confirm the gospel announcement that God has come to us in Christ and is making everything right? By living it. By living as loving, cooperative, courageous, respectful people whose confidence in God is not diminished by COVID-19 or anything else. By refusing to fear, by living the Jesus way with each other. When one person lives that way, people will think, he is such a great guy. But when a church lives that way, people think the news about Jesus is true. It's not only true, it's advancing. This news about Jesus. God uses the announcement of the gospel, the news that he's come to us in Jesus and through his death and resurrection is taking charge and making things right. He uses that announcement to change lives. When we live this good news and announce this good news, people are changed. The world is changed, and nothing can stop it. In the first century, nervous authorities tried to stop it by ordering Jesus' people to be quiet. That backfired big time. They tried to silence the heralds of the good news by putting them in prison an act that has been repeated thousands of times since, right up to this very day. Paul himself sat in prisons around the Mediterranean, including in Philippi, and the ironic thing is, in just about every prison he visited, a new center of the Jesus movement sprang up. The Soviets imprisoned Solzhenitsyn on the Gulag Archipelago. They didn't silence him. They handed him a bullhorn to spread the gospel around the world. Richard Rembrandt spent 14 years in a Romanian prison because he announced that King Jesus was the rightful ruler of the world. Instead of taking away his voice, they made him the voice of the underground church worldwide. Stalin imprisoned Roman pastors and sent them to work camps in Siberia. Today, there are hundreds of churches in Siberia because of those men and others like them. The good news can't be locked up. We've all heard the stories in the last few years about the American pastor Andrew Brunson, who in 2016 was arrested by Turkish authorities and put in jail. At one point, he felt so alone that All he could think over and over again was, God, where are you? Why are you so far away? When he could take no more, he started weeping bitterly. 
But when he opened his mouth to pour out his lament, what came out was, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. You can't lock up the good news. And it can't be killed. The first Christian martyr was Stephen. You can read about him in Acts chapter 7. His execution didn't stop the news of Jesus. It spread it for the first time outside the land of Israel. In the 1970s, in Iran, evangelical Christians numbered 2,700. Today, after 40 years of imprisoning Christians and even executing some, it's estimated that there are 800,000 Christians in Iran, that it's the fastest growing Christian country by conversion rate in the world. After decades of a campaign to eradicate all faith in Jesus, China now has more believers in Jesus than any other nation on earth. The good news can't be stopped. The next reference to the gospel, the, this good news announcement comes in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me. What has happened to him, false arrest, imprisonment. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. We've heard a lot of talk about social distancing during the COVID-19 pandemic. If anyone knew about social distancing, it was the Apostle Paul. He was forcibly removed from friends and family and stuck in stone-cold prison cells again and again. So what did he do? Complain about mistreatment and injustice? No, he rejoiced that his hardships had been the occasion of an advance of the good news. How do you stop someone like that? You don't. Nothing can stop the good news when it's announced and lived. Not executive orders, not threats, not imprisonment, not even death, and certainly not COVID-19. God is already at work bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ, that's Ephesians 1.10, and nothing can stop him. And nothing can stop us who are committed to the cause of Jesus. Now, there's another verse in this chapter that references the gospel, twice, actually. The good news that has come to us from God through Jesus. In verse 27, now, I've already mentioned that we need to do more than announce the good news. We need to live it. That's what this verse is about. Paul writes, whatever happens, see, he's facing the possibility of a death sentence. He's waiting to hear back what his sentence will be. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. A good contemporary translation of verse 27 starts like this. The one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. In fact, the word he uses there is related to behaving as a citizen. 
Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king, to the good news of the king who put others first, who loves them sacrificially, who will not even allow death to come between him and those he loves. Our public behavior must must match up to the good news of the king. And it does, verse 27, when we stand firm, we don't back down. We don't live in cowardice. We do the right thing, even when it's costly. We do the loving thing, no matter what. Our public behavior matches up to the gospel when we remain one in spirit and resolutely resist every temptation to division. Since the good news we proclaim is about what the reconciling God has done, the way to live in a manner worthy of the good news is to be reconciled to each other. That means if the crisis we're now enduring should find you unreconciled to and distant from some Christian brother or sister, make every effort to be reconciled. That's how you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's how you confirm the good news that we proclaim. I want to wrap this up with a story about how good news changes us despite our circumstances. Towards the end of the Second World War, two Scottish friends were captured and put into a German POW camp. For some reason, one was put with the Americans and the other with the British, who were kept apart by a tall wire fence. The Americans had managed to secretly construct a homemade radio and were able to get news from outside. Each day, the friend on the American side would walk to the fence and share a headline or two in ancient Gaelic with his friend on the other side, which the guards couldn't understand. One day, the news came over the little radio that the German high command had surrendered and the war was over. The one friend took the news to the other and then watched him as he disappeared into the barracks. And a moment later, there came a roar of celebration. Life in that camp was transformed from that moment on. Men walked around whistling, singing, waving at the guards. They even laughed at the dogs. It was three days and three nights before the German people were told the news. The guards fled the prison during the night and left the gates open. The next morning, the British and Americans walked out as free men. But you see, everything changed for them three days earlier when they heard the good news. We have good news. God has come to us in Christ, and by his death and resurrection, He's making things right. He's making us right. Christ will come back to take up his rule. But we've already heard the news. The battle has been won. Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Let's pray together. God who has come among us in Jesus. May the good news of what you have accomplished 
so fill our hearts and minds that there is no longer room for fear. May your love for us cause us to love one another deeply. Lord, we need wisdom and guidance to know when love would have us take risks and to know when love would have us refrain from risks, to know when we should go and be with others to help them, to know when helping them means to stay away. We don't understand these things, but we trust you by your Spirit to lead us and keep us together. In the good name of Jesus, amen.